the Empire Podcast this week. We're live at the Edinburgh Film Festival. Hey! Look at that. Just like we rehearsed. Telepod, I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. It's recorded in front of a live studio audience. Just like all those great sitcoms, Friends, Frasier, Seinfeld... Mrs. Brown's boys. <laughs> We're here at the wonderful film house, of course, right in the heart of Edinburgh's cultural quarter. You can tell it's cultural because there's Nando's across the street. Uh, for our second live podcast, and we're very, very excited. Over the next two hours or so, you're going to get the usual movie news, reviews, and nonsense. Plus, we have two very special guests. Mr. Frodo himself, Elijah Wood, will be here, and the man who was the original, and some say best, Hannibal Lecter, local legend Brian Cox. But... Just like Agnes Brown, I can't do this alone on medical grounds as much as anything. So please welcome my very own boys and girl. Uh, first up is our podcast editor, a man whose love of train spotting is so great he models his hair after Kevin McKidd's and has found to track down the world's worst toilet while he's here. Clue, it's in the Empire apartment. Uh, it's Ali Plum! Hey! <laughs> you, you. Uh, next up, we have our art house guru, a man who feels at home here. He actually lived in Edinburgh for a while, so he never ceases to tell us. Uh, he went to university here. He graduated with the first in subtitling for the utterly miserable. Please welcome <laughs> Phil Dissemblian. <laughs> last but not least, we have our geek queen, a woman who, like me, has Celtic blood running through her veins and, you know, a little bit of hips and hearts as well. That's fun for the locals. Um, she used to be a tour guide in the city for one day only. She was fired from complaining Edinburgh Castle didn't have enough dragons. It's Helen O'Hara! How are we all? You're good? All good? All good? You're all good? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good? I'm good. good. That's very good. I'm very glad to hear that. Um, okay, first up, we're going to tackle the week's movie news. Now, it's recorded on a Tuesday, this podcast. You ordinarily be recorded on a Thursday, so we actually have some movie news to talk about. Um, but luckily, in a quirk of fate I like to call Bastard's Law, uh, what happens is Hollywood waits until the Empire podcast goes up live on a Friday, and then they release great movie news. Uh, because they're bastards, basically. Um, <laughs> so last week, the news hit after we went up that Ryan Johnson, director of Brick and Looper and the other one no one ever talks about because it's actually that good, um, The Brothers Bloom, uh, is uh, going to direct and write, in that order, Star Wars Episode Eight. So what do we, what do we make of this? What do we make of this news, What do we guys? make? We're, we're excited. We're pro-Ryan Johnson. He is very good. Those two films that you mentioned, I don't remember a third, were both excellent. <laughs> it's not that uh, bad. It's, it's, ruffler, not, it's it? fine. It's good. It's, it's good. Yeah, ruffler, yeah. It's just not, you It's know. not as good. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously his work on Breaking Bad was spectacularly good also. Ozymandias is one of his. Fly, so, also. So he is definitely a good person. He is a person we want to be making more and more films. Now, he's writing and directing Episode Eight. He's also apparently at least doing a treatment for Episode Nine. So the expectation is that might possibly turn into a gig for episode nine as well. Who knows? But it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, when he was he was in on the podcast, uh, you may remember. Here's what he said, for those of you who don't. He was, at that point, writing or supposed to be writing his next project. He was really excited about it, plugging away on it. He said it was vaguely cyberpunk, kind of. But that's a bit of a misdirect, but that's a, not a purposeful misdirect. Just a very different sci-fi from Looper. 
Now, I'm not going to be a conspiracy theorist and say he was writing Star Wars all the way back then, but I'm going to call it and say he was writing Star Wars all the way back then. I mean, it could, it could be, or it could be that, you know, that totally didn't work out and he couldn't figure out the rules of time travel or whatever it was he was playing with and decided to drop it and do Star Wars instead because, hey, Wookiees. Or he just changed all the names. He just did a find and replace. And, oh, this is yeah. a great Star Wars script. Shit. I, guys, what do you make of this? You don't think he went back in time and, and told himself? It's unlikely. It's unlikely. It's unlikely. Can we rule it out? I, no, I love him because he is a big fan of old-fashioned cameras and I'm that kind of hipster prick. Uh, and he came in with his camera and was taking lots of snaps of us. So on his, <laughs> on his old-fashioned... He was wasting real film on us of photos of like me and Helen going, <laughs> Oh, you make good films, apart from that one. That is our actual photo face yeah. as well. <laughs> He's got a really fun personality. He seems quite reserved, but I don't know. It's a real shot in the arm for Star Wars. I'm encouraged even more about mm. this uh, than I was before. Yeah. If he's doing both as well, like if he is possibly doing an outline for the next one, just sign me up. Like that, that kind of, you know, overarching plot. Yes, mm. I'll have a bit of that. But I kind of like the idea that this trilogy will follow the original trilogy. Uh, I believe there was another trilogy, but I don't know. No, I don't think so. If that can be confirmed. Is that, is that the one with the Brothers Bloom in it? I believe it was, yeah. <laughs> yes, um, and Indiana Jones 4. You know, and each of those movies had a different director, and I quite like the idea that Episode 9 will have a different director as well. So that, that, could, be, that could be quite cool. Mm. But yeah, he's, he, he is awesome. He's got, he's got a really interesting sensibility. And I, I, I'm kind of scared by how right all the choices Disney seem to be making on Star Wars thus far. Are. are they, you know, they're making, you know, J.J. Abrams, good director, Josh Trank, good director, Gareth Edwards, good director, um, you know, and uh, Ryan Johnson. You think they're softening us up? What? You they're, they're, all, you know, they're all Max <laughs> Rebo solo tales. Is this, yeah. Well, no, I'm thinking you're, they're softening us up, and then the next director they announce is going to be, uh, you know, is going to be Brian LeFant. Yeah, Uber Ball. Yeah, oh, he'd be amazing. I just want there to be a world where. And by the way, this is a record. First five minutes we mentioned Breaking Bad. For the Empire podcast, that's incredible. <laughs> we haven't even mentioned Event Horizon or Evil Dead 2 yet, so there's still time, wait, wait guys, if you're playing. Absolutely. Yep, you can um, play the drinking I, game. I would say, if there is a world where Brian Cranston could be a Sith Lord... <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine. <laughs> I'm not going to spoil you by doing my impersonation of Brian Cranston being Darth Vader, but imagine. I am the one who force chokes... Uh, yeah, film. there you go. You haven't seen it. I know Star Wars is not your thing because it's got color in it, uh, but <laughs> is it? There are subtitles, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. Some of it's in foreign languages. <laughs> no, I love Star Wars. I'm, I'm, I love Ryan Johnson because I got to fly to New York to spend five minutes talking to him about Looper, which <laughs> 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 was the ultimate jolly. Um, I, I think he's a really gifted storyteller, and I think the, 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 the films that he's done, Brick, especially Brothers Bloom, was a little got a little bit caught up in its own kind of... Wait, do we not like that? Uh, yeah, you think we've, we've not sort of jumped? No, I don't think we haven't. <laughs> sorry, Ryan. I feel sorry um, for Brothers Bloom. I, I've, I've given it a kick in unfairly. Nice fellas. Do you think yeah. so? Yeah, they're nice guys. Yeah. <laughs> really nice guys. Anyway. Um, but yeah, I'm totally excited about this. I, I, I kind of wonder with these guys, they're all, they're all making a massive leap from, I mean, with the exception probably of um, Gareth... Yeah. Edwards from you know smaller kind of films that they can put their creative stamp on to something much much bigger um, I'd be interested in what that process is like and how someone like Ryan Johnson can be sort of slightly protected and nurtured from you know mm. maybe the studio heavies you know but if he's given his sort of creative free reign I think it's going to be excellent 
I would love it if there was no exchange of ideas. And he <laughs> just wrote, he wrote the script for the next Star Wars film having no idea what happened in this one. Can you imagine? It'd be like, you know, <laughs> It'd be hey. one of those games where you draw the bits of the human body and you just... <laughs> Ryan Johnson goes to Gareth Edwards, uh, yeah, dead. so uh, yeah, I'm killing Chewbacca. Ooh. It's like, well, my movie is a Chewbacca movie. <laughs> and why isn't there a Chewbacca biopic? Honestly, he's the best one. I know something about his family and there's a... There's a... <laughs> What's up? That's really sinister. Well, <laughs> well, well, it actually is. The holiday special you oh, could yeah. describe. Come on, guys! <laughs> that guy! Come on. Can, who can name all of the family? No, don't. Well, there's, don't. There's Lumpy, Chumpy, Testy, and, uh, and, and Corduroy. But this reminds me, I know I've mentioned this before, but Brian Singer, I remember asking him when he was doing promotion, uh, the press tour for Jack the Giant Slayer. He's a guy who wasn't brain trusting anything with um, <laughs> X-Men, Days of Future Past. It was amazing. I just said to him, so, you know, have you been in touch with, uh, with the guys for the Wolverine just to make sure this connects properly with Days of Future Past? Nope. Not really. Suck it. No. He didn't go, <laughs> shit. Exactly the same thing happened. The, the continuity of the X-Men movies is notoriously tangled. Uh, and uh, I was on set of First Class. Were you on set? Yes, I was on set. Said at first class, Helen. Yes, I was. Matthew Vaughn said, "Yeah, so you got, you know, you like Emma Frost in this, but there was an Emma Frost in X Men Wolverine." Yeah, don't give a shit. Don't care. Don't care. And he just, he literally, genuinely did not give a shit, and that was great because it actually freed him up a little bit creatively. So maybe Singer feels the same way. Three people's names we've mentioned so far: Brian Cox, Elijah Wood, and Ryan Johnson. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's, we don't that's, just, we I don't know why you're clapping, you pervert. <laughs> this is why we're all that's sitting down, frankly, because this is the most erotically charged podcast we've no, ever done. No, it's not. <laughs> it really Number is. 32 was off the chain. <laughs> um, we've, we've accidentally mentioned a Marvel movie, which I'm going to use to segue into my news. Ooh, nice uh, now, this isn't actually a movie as such. It's Netflix. You know Netflix. It's the Daredevil Hell's Kitchen story, which is going to evolve into the Defenders, which will be the Avengers for the Hell's Kitchen. So four characters from Daredevil's world, now that that's back in the hands of Marvel, they're teaming up with Netflix and they're making this grand master plan, which is exciting because they're doing something uh, rather different, not just the same old stuff. Not that it's getting old. Honest. I love it. Empire. (laughs) Uh, So we have casting news. We already know that Matt Murdock, Daredevil, He's Charlie Cox, and we know that Kingpin will be Vincent D'Onofrio. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Was that terrible or just bad? No, it's, it's fine. That's no, good. good. Okay, great. Uh, now we have a new casting announcement, but not the name of the character she ooh, will be playing. It is Rosario Dawson. Ooh. Who is very much ooh. Just me. Great actress, beautiful lady, and I think uh, a little bit of extra excitement for this project, which I was already just fascinated by. We're not sure who she's playing. Any guesses? Probably a superhero. I imagine so. I'd imagine so. <laughs> um, she is a huge comic book nerd, as if mm. you didn't find her attractive enough already, Chris. She's a comic book nerd and a gamer, and oh. uh, yeah. Does she like FIFA? Let- <laughs> I'm not going to say yes because I think if I did, you might collapse. So that's a thing that's happening. I I think it's just more encouraging that it's managing to attract such. It's going to come across badly. Great talent. But it's good. Well, but this, if you said that way, well, how are you? No, I just oh, look well at look done. at your face as your eye, eyelids flick up. Great talent. That's better. <laughs> okay, okay, that's much better. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So that's Phil. all I've got. Yeah, that's good. Phil, what have you got? I have news of Sylvester Stallone, who's promising to make No Country for Old Men his way. Rambo Five. <laughs> apparently, it's. I think. I think the No Country for Old Men references because it's kind of set on the Mexican border, and he's quite old. 
But beyond that, I don't know if there's any great kind of um, bead that you can draw between those two. But this is a pro- this is a project that's been. I don't know if anyone here saw the last Rambo in uh, 2008, I think. But yeah. um, it didn't get great reviews, but it did make enough money to kind of keep this project kind of on the boil. Although having said that, in 2010, Stallone said that he was about 99% sure that he was going to do what he did with Rocky and just it was going to come full circle and that was it and it had been done. A couple of years later, he decided that he'd, he was dying to do it, apparently. So if anyone can guess what happened in 2011 that involving his bank statement, I imagine. Um, he's, this is now something that's, that's apparently been, been picked up and, and going to go into production. Um, Rumours are that there's, the story revolves around a girl being abducted and Rambo crossing the border to get her back and taking on Mexican cartels. Uh, and Tuco-like characters. I think Rambo's kind of started strong and has kind of nosedived ever oh, since. Oh, I mean, like, I think the last one was slightly better than maybe we'd seen. Is that before. the one where he, he brought democracy to Burma, didn't he? Yeah, 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 but, like, he also well, cut off a dude's head killing much everyone. with yeah. a single stroke of his knife. Who, so. saw, who saw that film? Who saw that Rambo film? My God, it was violent. It's probably the most violent mainstream movie I've seen in a long, long time, and I've seen Punisher Warzone, which came out the same year. It was extraordinary. It was blood, heads severed, arms were ripped off and used to beat the severed heads with. It was, it was just overkill. It's not technically Rambo 4. It's actually Hot Shorts Part Dur, Part Dur. Yeah. Uh, and there is one bit where he fires a chicken at a Burmese uh, terrorist. It's great. And more films should have that. Not yeah. enough Maybe chicken arrows. Yeah. Those terrorists were vegetarians, so he was really sticking it to them. Oh, really? On yeah. several levels. Good old Rambo. Good old Slice to Long. Do you reckon um, Rambo would ever go to Nando's? Yes. Hananos. Yes, I think so. <laughs> yes, I think he would. Okay, that's it. I think he would. Good. Thanks for coming, guys. And, uh, oh, God. Now we've solved that great question. Um, but, but, you know, we're going to do a shameless plug now because, as chance would have it, uh, it's new Empire Week. Uh, you guys all came here. Thank you for coming. Uh, you all have old Empire. We don't like old Empire anymore. It's gone. It's off sale. Uh, we like new Empire, new shiny Empire that Helen is holding up with the Guardians of the Galaxy. That's our subscribers cover. We're going to discuss it and force you all at gunpoint to buy it. So, um, yeah. what's in it? What's in this month's Empire Helen. The one with Guardians of the Galaxy on the cover. That's the one. You know what? Inside is... Uh, I was on set of Guardians of the Galaxy, Chris. Oh, for the love of God. <laughs> so anyway, there's the set report. name dropping. Basically, yes, where I hung out with Rocket Raccoon and Groot and some other people who were actually there in person. Basically, this is Marvel's oh. team of underdogs uh, teaming up to become heroes. Um, so that leads off our future of film month. This, the idea is we're looking at the future of cinema led by, you know, space critters. So we've got Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which sees in, uh, pushes some boundaries in terms of VFX in that you can now do essentially what James Cameron did with Avatar, but outdoors. You don't mm. need the volume anymore. That's true. None of us are actually here. role played by Andy Serkis, who's out in the car park in a <laughs> exactly. really, really skin-tight leotard. He mm. He's getting me horribly wrong. Yeah, horribly wrong. Mm. Uh, we also looked at, speculated as the living room and cinema of the future, what those are going to look like. We looked at uh, young adult sci-fi in the form of Maze Runner, which I believe that was that an alley joint. Let's say it was. It wasn't. It was. Let's say it was. It looks great. It does. <laughs> What's it about, Ali? Uh, well, there's this maze. Uh, <laughs> uh, I could actually tell you if you want. You okay. don't want. You don't want. You don't. N- just no. That's fine. okay. That's fine. Yeah, that's maze. maze. Yeah. It's got great talent in it. Great, great talent. talent. And in a futurey thing, we also have uh, Jupiter ascending. Which, hey! Yeah, right. it's not out for a little yeah. while yet. Because we could see into the future and we knew it would be pushed back. Um, <laughs> which is why that's in the issue. Uh, but there are other things as well. There are, there's a great set visit on, uh, from Hercules. Uh, we, um, 
our reunions specialist and occasional pod contributor, uh, Nick DeSemelian, reunited uh, the, the people behind the first two Gremlins movies. So we have uh, Joe Dante, uh, Zach Galligan, the great Dick Miller, uh, Rick Baker and Chris Wallace, who did the uh, special effects for both the movies. We reunited them, did a great photo shoot with them. That's a fantastic little feature. You should, uh, actually, big feature. You should check that one out as well. And there's tons of other stuff in there. John Favreau is this month's pint of milk. And his ass, his arse, rather. Oh, Jesus. Oh, dear. I went Hollywood. I won't give away. I didn't actually see it firsthand, but he assures me it's quite hairy. Quite hairless, actually. No, it's, it's quite yeah. hairless. It's quite hairless. In case yeah. you're counting, that's four with Dick Miller. So, Ooh. four. Oh. So huh. I've just read the answer. And there's uh, Matthew Fawn on the Secret Service. There's uh, a Luca Fox catcher. There's set visits from Sack uh, Brabs Wish I Was Here and Begin Again, which has Mark Ruffalo in it, who, of course, was in The Brothers Bloom. Everything is circular here. And that is the movie news uh, done and dusted because I can just see off stage. Hmm. Our first interviewee has arrived. Uh, so Helen and I are going to leave the stage. Phil and Ali will remain. Uh, but first, I'll do. A nice big intro. There aren't many actors who could justifiably be called legends at the ripe old age of 33. But our first guest, one that deserves that tag, he made his debut memorably as Video Game Boy in Back to the Future Part 2 and became one of the finest young actors around with turns and likes of The Faculty, Radio Flyer and The Ice Storm. Recently, he's been exploring his darker side and the likes of Maniac, uh, Grand Piano and Sin City, but he's best known for a trilogy of small independent films about a group of hobbits trying to throw a ring into, the volca- into a volcano. He's here in Edinburgh with this new film, Set Fire to the Stars, which he plays a budding American poet assigned to shadow the great Dylan Thomas. Will you please welcome the heart of the fellowship, Mr. Elijah Woods! <laughs> Y'all. Oh, complicated. Now, if you're done oh. clapping for me, uh, I, my, I would like to point out we are sitting on tables which are about three foot away, and Elijah's taking a photograph because you guys are so good looking. Well yeah. done. <laughs> Great news. It feels like we're about to interview you and not for you know, media purposes. Uh-huh. What makes you think you're worthy of a position at Empire? <laughs> um, I love film. I'm extremely passionate about film. Uh, I don't know if I'm much of a writer, but, uh, but I, I, I'm extremely passionate, so I feel like I'm, I'm good for this job, whatever. How's your transcribing? Great. Great. <laughs> Just say great. Great. Great talent. My first question, this is about... This movie does about, feel like a job interview. Doesn't a little it? Bit. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit nervous, clammy palms. <laughs> this is a film where you play, obviously, an American character and Dylan Thomas, who apparently is Welsh. And we're yes. in Scotland, which yes. is Scottish. That's where we are right That's now. That's where, where we are right yeah, now. Yeah, so this is Scottish. This is Scottish. How yeah. good is your Welsh accent? Uh, thankfully, I didn't have to have one, and I imagine it wouldn't be great. Welsh is a funny accent. Yeah. I find not... it infectious. Were you not on set finding yourself getting a little bit sing-song every once in a while? Yeah, maybe it bled through a little bit. Yeah. Because yeah. you, you, you shot this partly in, in, in Swansea. Swansea. Yeah. South Wales, yeah. But also Lahan, which is, is where... He lived where yeah. Dylan Thomas lived in the exactly. house. Yeah. yeah. So we went to Lahn um, on a weekend, Cal and I. We did a little Dylan Thomas uh, pilgrimage. It's great. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Did you go to the little shed where it's all of his... Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's his pretty... writing effects are all there. Yeah, yeah. It's like he never left. Yeah, it's a little creepy. It's interesting, the ghost of him was sort of following us the whole movie in a way. Because we shot, we shot in um, the no-name bar where he used to drink. A lot. Uh, and there was a cafe that we, we turned into a diner that he used to eat breakfast at. So it was kind of, you know, 
But funny, because we were shooting it for the United States. <laughs> it's supposed to be New York. Swansea as New York. When I think of New York, I think of Swansea. It, right? It's, 100%. Real, it's like a sister city in Wales. Sure. Did you know Dylan Thomas's work pretty well before that? I think... Not at all. I think... I, I kind of... A lot of people know it perhaps best from the Richard Burton, those famous Richard Burton kind of audio recordings of Under Milkwood. Right. Um, you, you hadn't come across... So what was the kind of the, kind of the hook for you to to take the role the hook was the script really which is interesting because the script you know on paper it's a two-hander it's a character piece about a guy who brings this this famous poet to the united states and he's sort of taken on more than he's bargained for and ultimately the relationship that they have and develop over the course of those seven days so on paper that could be i don't know it could be sort of stale it could be like overly um historical or feel like a biopic but it moved off the page it was so electric and it sort of had this sort of jazzy punk rock vibe to it and I, I was just intrigued by the characters and intrigued by the piece and it was kind of an exciting thing to want to jump into I also was really intrigued by the fact that it was it was a character piece I hadn't really done anything quite like that in a while it was kind of like itching to just jump into something that was you know a, a couple of actors playing these characters and, and detailing this relationship and the fact that Andy Goddard wanted to make the movie, shoot it in black and white, for it to have this sort of impressionistic style. He mentioned With Nail and I in our first meeting, and I was like, you fucking had me at that movie. Uh, It's one of my favorite films. So there were all these kind of elements that, you know, beyond the script that sort of served to really make it very attractive. We were going to ask you about With Nail and I, because Phil and I are probably the biggest With Nail and I fans in the office. On this table. It's such a great film. It's such a great film. What quotes do you find yourself crowbarring into general conversation uh, <laughs> there's one that you're not going to say I think bring me some of the fi- what is it The uh, bring me cake and some of the finest wine available to humanity is that what it is yeah yeah that, that one that one sticks out <laughs> on the regular even if you're not on a cake sure shop. yeah why not right here right now <laughs> it can apply to any situation yeah, exactly oh that film is so brilliant it's incredible have you been to the location where they shot it no oh wow well after this We'll get you in a cab. <laughs> You'll go all the way. To the latest. 12 hours. Yeah. Just send he's got, he's got commitments. Um, well, actually, no, that is not true. Penrith is the town that they shot. Where the tea shop is. Yes, yes. I've been to Penrith. Oh, great. So, and you didn't go into a tea shop and order the finest wines known to I didn't actually, no. And then drunkenly stumble out and into a big Bentley. I did not. Ugh. Do you know Richard E. Grant had never been drunk prior to that film? No. This is a fact. No. Okay, you've got the job at Empire. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> but pri- prior to that film, uh, he had never been drunk in his life, which I- is really hard to imagine. And then he had Paint Stripper, and then... And I think he... I think the story goes that he got drunk prior to shooting once to have had the experience, and then that was it. <laughs> and that provided the information that he needed to perfectly play a drunk person yeah that is very difficult as an actor i've been down that road and with uh, i don't know middling success but uh (laughs) he is extraordinary in that film as a as a drunk person it's great as a perfume ponce who's now making perfume right i wanted to ask about kind of unusual bit of promotional tie-in for this movie is dylan thomas where you actually introduced the bbc's coverage of the Six Nations rugby right. by, by, <laughs> by reciting Dylan Thomas. Yes. And I wonder before you did that, whether you got the full explanation of, of, the, of the game of rugby from anyone. Do you, is that... I'd seen, I'd seen a rugby match before. Um, You'd seen a rugby? I'd seen a, ru- I'd seen a rugby. 
I'd been to the rugby. <laughs> I'd actually seen the All Blacks play Australia, which is a pretty heavy rivalry. Go All Blacks or Australia, depending on where. <laughs> um, how did that come about? What's that? How did that come about? We were just finishing production, and they knew that, that we were filming it and that we were in town, and that game was coming up. And I guess they had had another actor do it before, and so they asked if I would, yeah, if I would uh, recite a poem. I was excited about it, but I also didn't really understand the significance mm. um, <laughs> beyond the fact that, you know, X million people watch that particular game, so I suppose that was enough. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Was it all right? Good job. Yeah, I, good I also job. sort of thought, like, I, maybe I'm not the person to be reciting Dylan Thomas. <laughs> like, it sort of felt kind of inappropriate. It should have been Kellen, really, but there you go. Oh, well. This movie has, as its tagline, never meet your heroes. <laughs> what heroes have you met that have disappointed you horribly? And what do you say to people who see you in the street and pass out because you're you, and you, you tell them to just say, look, I told you, it's on the tagline of the film, never meet your heroes. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually never been terribly disappointed. Wow, never... allow us to rectify that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've never had that experience of meeting someone that I had great reverence for and had expectations that they would be wonderful people to, and it turned out that they weren't. I don't know. I, I feel like I've had relatively realistic expectations of everyone that I've met, and I've not yet been disappointed, Let which me is kind of great. Which people have nonplussed you? What exactly do you mean by that? I was going to say, if you've never been over-impressed or under-impressed by anybody, is there anybody that's just made you feel, huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm always, you know, when I get a chance to meet other actors or film directors, I'm always enthusiastic because it's people that I, whose work I admire. So I'm, I don't know if I'm ever nonplussed. Uh, I'm per, per, you know what? I'm mainly not nonplussed by musicians. Ah. I'm far more excited in some ways to meet musicians than I am actors because it's the world that I work in, which isn't to say that I'm not impressed to meet certain people because I certainly am, but I'm more often than not super impressed to meet musicians. You're a big Franz Ferdinand fan, I gather. I liked their first record. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, you know, we're in the... Friends Ferdinand's a good band. Yeah. And they're a good band. And they're local, right? They're from, exactly. They're from Scotland, so, yeah. The Vaselines are coming out with a new record. Mm -hmm. That's pretty wild. That'll do. Mm -hmm. It's cool. We I approve. like the Vaselines. Yeah. I, I, Mogwai are good. Should we keep talking about yeah, them? Yeah, keep going. <laughs> Scottish bands. <laughs> this is the 10th anniversary of, of one of my favorite films, and I think quite a lot of people's favorite films, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, oh, which, yeah. in which you work closely with Mark Ruffalo, obviously, in a lot of your scenes. Yeah. Um, and Kirsten Dunst, obviously. Yeah. Were you there for the famous underpant dance sequences in that movie? I missed it because it's when I leave. So oh, okay, I'm, right. I'm not in the room. What do you... What so do you... unfortunately... <laughs> Damn. Yeah. What do you remember about, about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? I only intended, obviously. <laughs> what do I remember? Nice. Man, it was such an extraordinary experience. I would have done anything on that film. I remember when I first heard about it. I mean, seriously, because I was such a huge fan of Kaufman's work as a writer mm. and Michel Gondry as a director. Because I'd seen all of Michel Gondry's um, music videos and I'd seen Human Nature. And I just loved everything that he did. So I first heard about the film and I was like, fuck it, I don't even need to read it. I'll just, I'll do like catering or whatever. Like, I just, <laughs> I just want to be a part of whatever these two people are doing. It was so exciting. And the script is so, is so beautiful. And I think it's kind of the most emotional thing that, that Kaufman had done. Because so much of Kaufman's work is, it's so original, but it's so cerebral. Uh, which isn't to say that it, it's cold, but it's not entirely emotional. 
And I found that it, it captured something about being in a relationship and about love lost and the sort of panic of trying to get it back that was just so real, despite the fact that it was happening in this very cerebral, kind of surreal way. And to get to work with Michelle was just insane. It was awesome. So much fun. And Kate Winslet. Yeah. <laughs> Kate Winslet. I know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, should we, do, should we do some questions from you guys? That from make, you guys! You bloody guys! That's an excellent me. That's really very cool. Uh, who wants to ask a question? Please That's put your me. hand up if you'd like to, and then you can ask it. And uh, there'll be a microphone in front of your mouth. <laughs> Two steps. Two steps. You can do it, Guy. Hi there. Uh, I was just wanted to ask a quick question. Uh, you worked with Rooster Teeth on Red vs. Blue in their season 10. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to know how you felt that uh, that new kind of genre was coming on. Like, because it's uh, web-based content, which is not really the mainstream, and how that kind of experience was for you, and how you think it's going to develop in the future. That's a good question. That company is, um, you know, they're about to start financing or funding um, their yeah. first feature film. Laser Team. Well, it shows that, you know, that there's, there's real power um, to building a community. I think that's what they've done really well. Like, they've, they've created content and then galvanized a community around it and built up this incredible fan base to the point where Rooster Teeth has their own convention now in Austin, Texas every year. To be honest, I don't know Rooster Teeth that well. I don't pay attention so much to the content, but I know them, like Bernie Burns, who runs the company, I know him through friends of mine in Austin, and I have a place in Austin, I spend a lot of time there. So it was sort of like a friend to friend, hey, do you want to be a part of this thing? And I knew of it, just the red versus blue thing, because I, I was for a while a real fan of, of Halo and playing playing the game. It kind of lost me after Halo 3, to be honest. Yeah. A little. Halo 2 is where I stopped. But anyway, it was, it was a fun thing to be a part of, and I think, you know, we're seeing more and more content from the internet actually be turned into sort of viable, like almost television content. Um, and there are so many avenues now for, for, like, television distribution. So I sort of feel like, you know, they've always been saying for the longest time that eventually, you know, that'll be a monetizable, like, real place for people to make content that'll be taken seriously. Because the longest time, if it was, like, web-based content, it wasn't taken seriously as an art form. Um, and it seems like that, the tide is sort of shifting, which is, which is cool. It's all thanks to Grumpy Cat as well. Grumpy Cat, of yeah, course. Doing it all the way. And speaking of tiny, tiny independent productions, what can we ask you about The Hobbit? You can ask me anything. I don't I know that you, much. I don't know that much about it, but there, you can. There must be a joy to that with people just going, "Go on, um, you know, spill us a secret." Nothing. Got nothing. I kind of don't have anything. <laughs> I know how it ends. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that, is actually, that. that is actually a secret I do hold, so I do know that, and it's great. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> It's really good. You've got to love a good interview, don't you? Got to love one. Uh, <laughs> now, now, you kept a whole bunch of stuff from the original Lord of the Rings yeah. trilogy, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there now, were three. There were three. That's three, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. What did you keep from Sin City? I actually have, um, I have my outfit from the, from the movie. Please tell me you know that. That's sort of that. like jaggedy Charlie Brown shirt. That is... You in that film are one of the scariest things in existence. <laughs> do you, do you I ever, hear that a lot. I bet you do. That's really funny. Do you ever wear that out? At no, all? <laughs> no. But I, I was just going through my closet um, the other day where I keep things that I don't really wear, and I was moving through it, and I was like, oh fuck, I do have that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it in a while. Halloween. Yeah. Easy money. What else is in the cupboard? You got the zip top from the Ice Storm. Oh. I wish. <laughs> what else do I oh, have? Oh, that was an awe. <laughs> I've got 
um, if anyone watches Wilfred, do you know that show Wilfred? Did anybody see that? Uh, I have the, I have Bear. If, you would know what that is if you watch the show. And I have the Gatorade bong. <laughs> we all have one of those. We you all know. have one of those. A hell of a night in is taking shape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got any, another question from the audience? Gentlemen. Hello. Hello. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you were in Sky's Treasure Island? Yes. Eddie Izzard. What was that experience like? And what's Eddie Izzard like? Because I love him with all my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie's great, man. Eddie's great. That, that man has more ambition on his pinky than I've seen in anybody. I mean, it's just ridiculous. He's running for mayor of London. He, he, he is going to different countries and learning their language and doing his comedy show in foreign languages. I mean, it's just, the guy doesn't stop. Um, he's great. That was a lot of fun. I mean, I came in for a very short amount of time. I was there for two weeks and it was in Puerto Rico. I'd never been to Puerto Rico before. And I played a really mad character, which was kind of great. It felt really freeing. Um, you were a fan of the book? Yeah. I hadn't read it since I was a child, but yeah, loved it growing up. So it was really, you know, it was pirates and muskets and shit. It was great. <laughs> it was good fun. That's the tagline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Treasure Island, pirates and muskets and shit. Any more? Hello. Hello. Uh, I'm just wondering, do you ever find yourself accidentally quoting yourself from films? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Accidentally. Like, oh, I've said that before. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> no. Oh, man, that would be, that would be terrible. Weird, like, accidental self-parody. <laughs> So like someone shows up at your house and you're like, you're late. Do you ever do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, um, yeah, or if someone needs a lift home, like, I, I will take her. <laughs> but I do not know the way. <laughs> uh, it's pretty funny. Maybe I'll use that. Uh, Out of context, that could be bad. <laughs> Hi, I was just uh, wondering, uh, you always hear about people talking about how they've had really good experiences on set with other actors and that, but I was wondering, have you ever met an actor that you've really not liked and <laughs> has made the film worse to do? Oh. <laughs> if you answer this question, you'll be the first person I've ever heard actually answer that question. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've I've worked when I was younger. Um, I had I had some difficulty with certain people. I'm not gonna name names, but I yeah, I've had that happen. I honestly, I feel like I've heard more stories of that than I've actually had experiences. You sort of hear horror stories of actors behaving really poorly and being shitty and difficult to work with. And I, I honestly have had very few experiences like that and nothing that has truly ruined an experience. But I've definitely had like difficulty with certain people and I've seen some bad behavior for sure. But it's honestly, it's been pretty rare in my experience. I've been really lucky to work with a lot of good people and I'm not just being diplomatic. Now, uh, this might go down as well as Franz Ferdinand, but I gather you're a fan of Chris Morris. Oh, yeah, man. That's a good yes. Great. Um, I love Chris Morris. Have you had any cake recently? <laughs> <laughs> no, apparently it's, uh, it's street value. It's really hard to get. 
yeah. it's really hard to get these it, days. It's huge around here. It's also huge around everywhere. Yeah, cake is big. It's gonna. It's really the downfall of the English society. <laughs> Fuck Chris Morris. I got to meet Chris Morris. He he brought four lions out to Austin, Texas, for Fantastic Fest many years ago, and um, there was an after party, and Chris Morris was there. I was like, "Fuck, he's there!" And I was so nervous to meet him. And he's awesome. He's so great. And I was still kind of intimidated talking to him because he's very, he's wildly intelligent yeah. and quite serious and, and very dry. <laughs> so it's, uh, I, f I found him a little intimidating, but he was cool. Yeah, he's so intelligent. He actually studied zoology at Bristol University. And now he's doing what he does now. He studied zoology? That is correct. Wow. I know. That's how you become a great comedic writer. Oh. <laughs> Dude, Jam is so great. It's, yeah, when was the last time you watched that? Uh, it's been a long time, but that honestly like pushed the bounds of what is fun. I, I, that show bummed me out more than it made me oh, laugh. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's just, it's too, so dark. You know the phrase crying with laughter? It's that, but in a whole new meaning. Yes, <laughs> yes. So Elijah, is, is a Wookiee a bear? <laughs> is a Wookiee a bear? Yes. A Wookiee is a Wookiee. Right. It's a very good answer to that question. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, we, we, we should wrap up. I, Are you guys I'm... excited about Star Wars? Apparently they might have to push the movie six months because of the injury. Um, Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford actually broke his leg, not his ankle, and it might push the movie back six months wow. from their original release date, which means it would come out around Memorial Day of 2016. Whoa. I don't think wow. I can last that long. This is the rumor. This is the rumor. You heard it here first? <laughs> or read it on the internet before I said it? <laughs> After you wrote it, yeah. That's... <laughs> you know what I hear, guys? My spies in Pinewood. <laughs> <laughs> My little birds. Um, it has been nothing short than an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Oh, man, thanks. Uh, thank you for coming along. Thank you for having me. And, yeah, I, I said it before, but we'll speak to you. Is it Iron Brew? Yes, it's for yeah, you. Yeah, we have yeah, a present that, that for you. That is the weirdest fucking shit. <laughs> Honestly, I love that you clap. Yes, it is weird! You are the only person. Guys, this is such a strange thing. I've never... The last time I was in uh, Glasgow, I was introduced to it. And just look at that! What the hell? Can anyone describe what this actually is? I can describe what it tastes like. What does it taste like? Iron brew? <laughs> but with a question mark. Maybe four question marks at the end. Right. Feel phenomenal. <laughs> feel, not just feel good, feel phenomenal. And you know that's a command, that's an order. Oh my God, this is fantastic. That went down Original well. and best. <laughs> Drink it now and stay with us for the rest of the podcast and see what happens <laughs> as an experiment. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you so much. Guys, uh, until next you. time, this has been Elijah Wood. Dallas King. Feel phenomenal. At Champ Celluloid. Brought us lots of little gifts. He brought us iron brews and I don't know what the fuck that is. And uh, <laughs> local cuisine. Log, which is nice. Is that like a Scottish delicacy? I don't know. And then we have some shortbread fingers and a Scottish tablet. We don't do paracetamol up here. No, we do. <laughs> we do this. Amazing. Thank you. Did anyone else bring anything for us? We just great. let him go without 
organizing exactly when he's going to start at Empire. <laughs> we, we haven't said like salary or terms or conditions or anything. It's like, a disaster. Yeah. That was Elijah. Amazing. Uh, time now in another tweak of tradition for the podcast format for our movie reviews. Now, the biggest release this week was not only foretold in the book of Revelation, but was also hinted at by Nostradamus himself, uh, who wrote, and this is an actual quote, from the Isle of Emerald he rises, tough but fair, as a woman he disguises. Like what Les Dawson did, but with really obvious jokes about farts and willies. Fuckless, Friends is on Comedy Central again. Watch that instead. It's the one where Gunther kisses Phoebe. That's wow. not my words, but the words of Nostradamus. Wow. Uh, really spooky, actually. He was, of course, talking about Mrs. Brown's boys, the phenomenally shit uh, comedy smash that has now taken to the big screen like a tapeworm to a rectum. Uh, <laughs> In Mrs. Brown's Boys, the movie. Uh, now, this may come as a shock to you, uh, but I've gone Irish again. It, it's going to be shock. huge. It's going to be huge. My sister has booked tickets for 40 showings, but it hasn't screened for critics. And I don't think it ever will. I think... Uh, I, I, I predict it'll get a de plus. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's deplorable. It's debominable. Um, so uh, we don't have a review of that, but you know, go along, see it this week, and then we'll judge by the number of people who run in the street. So instead, we're going to focus on Chef, which is an actual movie um, <laughs> written, directed by, and starring John Favreau as a top chef who goes back to basics with a food truck when he loses his job. So, uh, Philbert. Aye. What do you think of this? Um, well, liked it. It's, it's feel good in every sense, really. It's, it's a movie that sees John Favreau kind of getting back to uh, sort of slightly smaller. I mean, it's an independent film, um, and it, he stars as. A, uh, a chef, Carl Casper, who's kind of, he's trying to push the, the boundaries of the food he serves in his restaurant. Marco Pierre White, kind of Gordon Ramsay style. Um, Dustin Hoffman plays the restaurant proprietor who says, no, keep serving the same stuff we've been making that's popular with, with, uh, with uh, the clients. And everything gets thrown in flux when a snarky restaurant blogger turns up and just dismantles him on, uh, on the internet. He decides to fire back I think what's drunkenly on Twitter, and uh, that's a mistake, as we all know. And it all ends basically with him getting back to basics, getting a food truck, and uh, hitting the road with his semi-estranged son, and serving good old-fashioned, basically cheese sandwiches. I think but <laughs> essentially that's what it is. It is yeah. This film is basically a film about cheese sandwiches, um, but they are amazing cheese sandwiches, and uh, it's a film that is just full of food. There aren't that many movies that celebrate food, which is weird because most of us have to eat, and uh, this one is kind of a definite. It's yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I we gave it three stars. I was probably a little more down on it than you guys were. I felt it was a little overlong, probably, and just a tiny bit sort of self-indulgent at points. The pace yeah. slightly sagged out of it for me. But yeah, a lot of fun. I would issue one word of warning. I am very positive. Phil is correct uh, on this. But don't go in on an empty stomach. I did. And oh, it, was, it was torture. It was it, The food in this film just looks incredible. Uh, it, it, it's... You know, you will be salivating. There is a moment halfway through the film. Now, this is not... I'm not kidding about this. There's a moment halfway through where somebody mm. takes out like, a big lump of brisket. It's been slow, sort of roasted over low fire overnight. And it's all kind of caramelized on the outside. And then he cuts into it. And I'm not kidding. Half the audience just went, oh. <laughs> 
So really, don't go in on an empty stomach. Mm. Uh, preferably have some brisket before you go. It, it's it food just porn. looks incredible. Yes, or and it's, porn, and the will. film itself does have that feeling of, of slightly being comfort food. It's it's quite an old fashioned sort of a story in many ways. It's a just a guy <clears throat> reconnecting with his family, reconnecting with his, I guess, art, and um, and it's a sort of a good hearted you know, simply told tale yeah. that's just really well done for my money. It's, it's, it's really interesting how the, uh, the next film from the director of Cowboys and Aliens is a, uh, is a smaller film about uh, a man trying to rediscover himself as an artist. Uh, and, uh, you know, Dustin Hoffman is his boss and you can read that as studio interference. Basically, he's telling him, no, make the stuff that the people want to see. And the, and the artist is going, no, 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 I want to make swingers again. I'm not swingers, I mean a sandwich. And, um, <laughs> and it, there's just there's so much a metaphor, I think, for where John mm. Favreau is in his career right now. And what this film reminds us is that he is the guy who wrote Swingers, and he is the guy who wrote Made and directed Made, which is a film I really, really like. And uh, yeah, he's still got that sort of independent spirit in him. This is a glossier independent film than perhaps we're used to, although it was still quite low budget, but it's just such a joyous vibe to this movie for me. It's such a nice group of characters to Mm. hang out with, a nice selection of food to salivate over. But, you know, we've we all sat there with our MasterChef box sets, haven't we? I mean, I have, in my pants. And, uh, <laughs> and this is going to be a nice addition, I think, to that. Uh, you know, this is going to be a great move. I'd love to hear the Greg Wallace commentary on this film. This yeah. is well-seasoned and full of flavour. What you've done, a wonderful thing. Don't be fooled by the advert. Scarlett Johansson is in this movie. Robert Downey Jr. is in this film. But there's a TV spot. There's a TV spot I saw that literally went, Robert Downey Jr. is amazing, as if he was a star of the film. He's in one scene. Oh, come on, he's two, in one scene. He's, well, one. No, he's okay. in one scene. And he basically plays, you may be shocked to guess, Robert Downey Jr. But he, he's really, really funny. He's just, very good at that. He's yeah. very, very good. I just really like this film. And uh, I'm just staring at this caramel log <laughs> as I talk about a film that celebrates food. And what the hell is this? <laughs> is this a real thing? It's, <laughs> car- it's caramel grown inside a log. <laughs> okay, done. I'll, I'll have one now. You guys talk about the film. I'll leave this. <laughs> I don't like that kind of racism. Let's kind of keep that down. Um, can I, uh, I, I? You talk about being food porn. There is one scene where the greatly talented uh, Scarlett Johansson is just staring at Jean Favreau oh, as yeah. he cooks pasta, and essentially all he does is, you know, boils the pasta. Trick one. Trick two: add ingredients, serve. But the way it's done, you almost expect some kind of like deep bass to start coming through the speakers. <laughs> bow, 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 and she's just sitting there going. <gasps> It's quite a sexy scene. It it's a, it's, it's a very sexy scene. Do you remember in, I think it's The Ipcris File, where Michael Caine takes, he takes a girl back to his flat and he said to her, I'm going to cook you the best meal you've ever eaten. And he basically makes a ragu <laughs> spaghetti. <laughs> and you're like, really? In the 60s, I think that would have counted. But. Probably would have, yeah. There wasn't much great food around that time. What did it for me was the cheese toasty that he makes for his son. Um, and he's got, he has the most amazing stove, which if you heard last week's podcast, uh, John Favreau talked about, he's now bought that stove and he's bought the, got this huge range and it's got like a, a hot plate on top, just perfect for making cheese toasties and it just looks I, delectable. I agree. That bit was ridiculous. I really, really, really wanted that sandwich. I, I am really behind this film. I really enjoyed it. It's old fashioned. It's um, a bit hokey. It does go on a bit too long. It gave me a great feeling. I really enjoyed it. I can't wait to watch it with my mum. Uh, it's that kind of homely family film. I'm really behind this. If you're curious about it at all, I'd say go and watch it. Definitely. Uh, but, you know, three stars is a recommendation. Mm, I agree with that, absolutely. Um, <laughs> that's actually quite nice. Okay, a lot. <laughs> it's quite nice. It's not favorite but it's quite nice. Yeah, we say family film, it's quite sweary. Yeah. Which is quite interesting, I Yeah, think. But, but Jenny, you know, she, she loves swearing, so it's fine. 
<laughs> Loves the old swear in your mum. Yeah. Okay, excellent. So three stars for Chef. That is a recommendation. Uh, what is next? Uh, what is next? Oh, yes. July. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, Colton July. Because last time we did a live podcast, it was back in February, the first one was for a 100th edition. Uh, we reviewed a Jim Mickle film, and then he's just to show that you know Miller and Lord aren't the only ones who can make two films every week. Uh, he has come back again with Cold in July, which is uh, uh, played here at the Edinburgh Film Festival. It's a late 80s set thriller starring uh, Michael C. Hall, Don Johnson, and Sam Shepard. It's about a uh, small-town guy who kills an intruder into his house. And that sparks off a whole series of twists and turns, which goes into some very, very dark areas. Helena. Yes. This is a film that I'm not going to say too much about the plot because it's one of those ones where you, do, you genuinely don't... The less you know going in, the better. If you've seen the trailer, I think it does a really good job of both setting up the film and actually giving very little away, really. Um, so it starts off with Michael C. Hall with a, a, a mullet for the ages um, because this is kind of set in the 80s uh, rather than the present day. Uh, yeah, he's he hears an intruder in the house. He wakes up. This is literally pretty much opening scene stuff. Um, goes to to try and confront the guy. His gun goes off pretty much by accident, and he kills him. And and this this is not a tough guy. This is not a, you know some kind of Western archetype. He is horrified by what he's done. He's very shaken up by it. He's kind of talked through it by his local police, who are like, "Don't worry, you know it's entirely understandable. This guy was in your house in the middle of the night, and he's a bad guy. You're fine." <clears throat> and all seems well until the guy's father shows up, who's played by Sam Shepard, and starts essentially stalking the family. So it gets into some really creepy territory. The the music is very, very 80s, very John Carpenter mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, really, really atmospheric. <clears throat> and you can practically feel the sort of the sweat tr- dripping down the back of your neck, both from fear and from the <laughs> humidity, because it's just all sort of sweaty, southern kind of Texas setting. Um, and yeah, I'm not going to say too much more about what Sam Shepard does. Don Johnson turns up a little bit later on. Um, is it Nick Dimitri, who is Jim Mickles, the director's writing partner, mm-hmm. also plays a key role as one of the policemen. Um, and it develops in very unexpected ways. And I think it's yeah. one of those films that can change tone in a way that doesn't take you out of the film, which is a rare and a beautiful thing when a film can do that. And I think this one did that exceptionally well. Uh, but again, I'm not saying how or why or when or what it changes, but it, it, there, are some, there are some changes coming. I'm not going to call them twists either, but it's a really, really clever film. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I think this is a fantastic film. I think Jim Mickle is a uh, really interesting filmmaker to keep an eye on. I, I really like Stakeland. I, 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 I think I fell in love with We Are What We Are, which tells you something about me because I'm quite sick. Uh, and that's another film that might make you want to eat. <laughs> I'm just about no. kind of throw it out there. Yeah, I triple bill chef... We Are What We Are and The Green Inferno. <laughs> that would be an interesting little uh, concoction to make. Uh, this film's fantastic. It turns in a dime. The performances are great. Michael C. Hall's fantastic. Don Johnson shows up about halfway through and really injects it with a, a sense of energy and a sense of fun. He's a private detective. He's very, very eccentric. There's a lovely interplay between the three leads, which is, uh, which is, which is great. Uh, and it just changes every five minutes. You think you know what you've got to handle in the movie. It's a stalker movie. It's a horror film. It's a corrupt cop movie. It goes into areas you might not expect. And it also features really interesting supporting turns as well. Mm. Wyatt Russell, um, who is Kurt Russell's and Goldie Hawn's son, 
who was so good in 22 Jump Street, if anyone saw that, uh, is in this as well and uh, can play in the complete opposite of his 22 Jump Street character. I won't <laughs> give anything away uh, beyond that, but uh, yeah, he's uh, quite scary in this film. And I think Mickle's a real deal. I really do. Mm. Uh, I thought this film was fantastic. Um, He'll probably be signed up for another Star Wars in a minute. Like, he's a, he's a young and very talented kind of indie director at the moment, so it stands to reason. Star Wars. Star Wars. Mean? Yeah. Or the next Jurassic Park. Yeah. One of those. Set in Alabama. Absolutely. And I said this before in the podcast a couple of weeks ago, but you know, honestly, make the thing too, but with Wyatt Russell as R.J. McCready. And you could just pick it up where it left off. Just dye his hair and you are good to go, I think. Uh, and we gave Colton July four stars. Four English stars, which translates up here as Scottish stars, of course. They're exactly the same. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's really, really good. So do uh, check that one out. Um, also out this week is the, uh, it's a four-star Spanish drama, The Golden Dream, uh, which is very, very good. There's also Walking in Sunshine, to which we gave two stars. It's perhaps, I guess, most notable for, I guess, marking the debut of Gemma Arterton's sister, Hannah Arterton. Um, Great talent. Great talent. Great, great talent. Uh, there's also A Haunted House 2, which is the latest from Marlon Wayans' Arsenal of Terror. Um, um, I don't think we've reviewed that yet. Have we actually given it a star rating? Have we had a, a critic brave enough to... to I'm not sure there was a screening it? of that for critics. There either. wasn't. So if anyone fancies coming around the weekend and watching that and Mrs. Brown Boys, the movie with us, then please do, God, report yourself to the authorities because you need to turn yourself <laughs> in. Uh, and last but not least, before we move on to the questions section where you ask us stuff, uh, Ali would like to wax lyrical about one film in particular because it touched him in a deep and oh, pleasant place. What is that film, Ali? Uh, well, I mentioned how I'm a bit of a hipster twatic kind of guy. The National. None more indie, indie band for indie folk who like thinking about how sad things can be and deep voices and, you know, repetitive riffs and, you know, words don't really make any sense. They are a band and the lead singer of the band, I want to get the pronunciation right for once in my life, he's called Matt Berninger, the lead singer, and his brother's called Tom. Now, Tom is a schlub, whereas Matt is a cerebral, clever, worthy man. And he invites his brother along on this tour around the world to see what his life is like and give him something to do. The movie's called Mistaken for Strangers. It's ostensibly a music doc, but actually ends up not being a music doc at all because what Tom wants to do is do a music doc about the National. What it ends up being is him having a series of squabbles and fights with not only his brother, but with the rest of the, you know, roadies who are doing this thing. And it's more about him being a bit of an asshole and <laughs> his brothers telling him he's an asshole and him not realizing that he's an asshole and then them having these butting of heads but then his brother still loves him i can't do it justice one of those films that you just need to see you don't need to be a fan of the national obviously that would help because there is a little bit of the old-fashioned five to ten minutes of them just playing but it's a very meta very clever very self-aware clever comedy that at times reaches the peaks of, of Spinal Tap but not through any intention it's just somebody being a bit of a melon uh, and you just watch him just he, he makes the most ridiculous decisions and thinks well are microphones necessary I mean for a band oh they are oh great okay yeah I meant to get them good um it turns into something just crazy, so just watch it. It may end up being something you see on Netflix, it may be something you see on iTunes. But do remember the name, Mistaken for Strangers. And Bill, I know you're a big fan. I, uh, yeah, of I'm the a band, big fan of the nation. Yeah. Uh, and you. And I wondered, I gather that Werner Herzog makes an appearance in this movie, is that true? Yes, as does Emily Blunt and John Krasinski. The bastard. <laughs> great talent, great talent. They are there at this national gig that, that obviously the national are performing at. And 
there are a whole host of very famous folk who are on the guest list. And guess who doesn't give the guest list to the front of house? His brother. And so suddenly it's just Matt, who is normally cool as a cucumber, just loses his shit because Werner Herzog can't get in the fucking gig. Uh, anyway, uh, you do see him look inordinately pissed off, even more so when Tom is there with a the camera going, Werner Herzog! Uh, so yeah, there you go. Mistake of Strangers, four stars. Four stars. Empire. My review, so take it all with a pinch of salt. No, oh, fantastic. <laughs> Sounds great. So that's the reviews nicely out of the way. On now to our second guest. When we knew we were coming to Edinburgh, I was desperate to have a local hero on the podcast. They don't come much more local or heroic, in fact, than this man. He's the honorary patron of the Lyceum, the theatre just across the road from here where he started his career. He's one of the finest actors around. He's an empire icon and has a shiny Perspect trophy that cost us five pounds to prove it. He's the original Hannibal Lecter, the original William Stryker, and along a brilliant screen career, he's shone in everything from Super Troopers to the Bourne films to Zodiac, 25th Hour, and Adaptation, to name but five. He'll soon be seen as Sir Matt Busby in Believe, and he's in town to celebrate the 19th anniversary, or the 20th anniversary, if you want to get finickety about it, of uh, the start of shooting sure. on Braveheart, Mel Gibson's Braveheart. Please welcome the original and best, Brian Cox! <laughs> Brian, hello, sir. Hello. How are you? How are you? Ah, fine. Frenetic. Just got here, but uh, good. You're here in town to uh, promote... For Braveheart. Braveheart, Yeah, it's the 20th anniversary, I think, when we started it. Uh, Yeah, we we filmed it... Yeah, we started July, I think. It was roughly then we started. Okay. Yeah. And uh, have you met up with the cast since? No, not yet, because I literally, I came down, I was fishing up an Aberfeldy, so I just come down. <laughs> did you catch anything? I did. We caught, well, actually, we were fishing in, we were fishing in a little place near Dundee called Forbes of Kingenny, and we caught 15 fish. Very good. We sent 12 of them back, and we've kept three. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a usual haul for you? Do you, you No, more, no, no, I've never caught anything before in my life. Really? <laughs> no, it was the first time I'd fly fished, and I caught one. That's not bad. But my son prefers, my, my, my son's with me, so he prefers bait. He didn't like fly fishing, he says it's boring. But anyway, <laughs> no, I like fly fishing. But obviously, um, you know, does Braveheart, in a way, does it hold a, a place in your heart? As uh... Yeah, it does. It was, a, it, was a, it was an extraordinary event, actually, the whole thing. I happened to be also in the other movie, Rob Roy, which was made at the same time. In fact, I didn't change hotel room. <laughs> I literally went from I was staying in the Spean Bridge Hotel and I went from one and I kept the same hotel room it was really bizarre it was really weird so basically between the two of those you, you seem to have like summed up Scottish history on film really yeah I, the director of Rob Roy he was very um, he was very funny he was called Michael Caton Jones he comes from Broxburn but We'll let that pass and <laughs> he, uh, he, he was very he was he tried to he tried to persuade me because I'm the only actors in both the movies I'm the only Scottish actor that's in both of them because I don't know about English actors, but I'm a Scottish actor. So um, he said, uh, you know, Brian, I, I, I think it would be better if you didn't do uh, Braveheart. And I said, why? And he said, well, you know, it's, I mean, all these kilts. I said, yeah, but there's something like 400 years of history between them. You know, they're quite different. <laughs> I mean, he should have known that, but then he's from Broxman, so. <laughs> but, uh, so uh, I said, fine, I won't do it. That's great. I'm very happy. So if you kindly give me, and I wrote it down, what the money I was getting, I said, and then I won't do it. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, hold on a minute. Um, <laughs> so I ended up doing both, and uh, it was great. Yeah. Excellent. 
Um, how did Mel Gibson persuade you, apart from writing down a figure? Well, <laughs> well he didn't do that. Uh, no, he actually it was it, again. I, I I was up for both movies, and I chose to do Rob Roy because I really liked the script of Rob Roy. I mean, Braveheart's iconic, but Rob Roy is written by a guy called uh, Alan Sharp, who's sadly no longer with us, and he wrote this fantastic script. And I was offered this really horrible part. I mean, not horrible, <laughs> it was a great part, but it was a horrible character. And I thought, hmm, it's interesting. And then Mel wanted me to play sort of one of the characters, but it wasn't as attractive a deal. So I accepted the Rob Roy, and then he came after me, and he said, well, I want you to be in the movie. What are you going to play? I said, well, I'm, you know, it sort of clashes. He said, no, no. I said, well, the only part that's really interesting, but he was des described as cadaverous, and I am not exactly cadaverous, <laughs> uh, was Uncle Argyle. I said, that's the part that's really interesting. And yeah. um, he said, that's it. That's what you're going to do, play Uncle Argyle. And originally I was to, there was a scene where I was supposed to marry Mirren and, uh, and, and, and William, but actually I didn't do that. Somebody else did it. So I was only going to be on the, I was only available to do it, but it was great. I, and I love Mel. I mean, he was just, he's just such energy. He has such phenomenal energy, and yeah. that was a great thing. And of course, he'd had a tough time up at Seven Sisters where they filmed all the Scottish bit. I was in the Scottish bit. I wasn't in the Irish bit. Mm. And it, it, was, it became quite difficult for him because the weather swept the set away at one point. And I remember going up, and I finished the last day in Scotland. And quite frankly, he was knackered. I mean, he was absolutely knackered. And I thought, this man's got to go on for three months in Ireland, mm. also playing the part. Mm -hmm. And I thought, ooh. And uh, apparently what happened, uh, Errol Lyman, the assistant, told me this wonderful story that uh, Mel was exhausted. In fact, David Twomblin, who I had to do a little scene, he was the assistant director, first assistant, he kind of was helping Mel, and Mel was, I could see him, he was sitting in the corner, and we were sitting, we were in kind of this wee bothy that we were, that was uh, Uncle Argyle, well, it's William's house we were in, it's after he dies, and we're having this meal together, the boy and myself. And Mel was really, um, you know, clearly knackered. And I thought, how the hell is he going to manage the next three months? Mm. And apparently what happened, that when he got to Ireland, uh, it was... The, that famous scene, you know, the famous freedom scene, yeah, uh, yeah. was the first scene he shot. And he had to climb this hill, and all the extras and all the Irish army were down in this valley. And uh, as he was climbing up the hill, he was still knackered. And the second assistant, this guy called Errol Lyman, he was very concerned about whether Melt was going to make it. Yeah. And he got to the top of the hill, and he took one look at all the extras and the whole of all, you know, thousands of Scots down there in the, and ready to do battle, you know. Yeah. And he went, well, this is it. And he kind of rose up, jumped on the horse, and he never looked back. Amazing. And apparently he said he's just got this phenomenal burst of energy that never left him for the next three months. Well, that's right. But um, it's amazing what you know, what Dr. Cinema and Dr. Theatre would do. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. Is that something you felt as well, maybe in the middle of a long run in the theatre? Yeah, know, yeah, you, you get that way, you know, you get that. There's a famous story of Yul Brynner, which I love. It's a story when he was doing, he was dying, and he was doing, um, he was playing another revival of The King and I, and he would walk to the stage very, very slowly, you know, and he'd hear, da, da, dum, and he stopped. He'd start lifting one foot, then the other foot, then the other foot. And eventually he'd break into this dance. Yeah. And he'd 
bounce on stage, do the dance, come off, and completely collapse. Oh and went God. back. And it, it is amazing what happens, you know. It's, it's, it's a real, you know, it's a real inoculation. Mm. What about Mel becoming Scottish for the role? I mean, I, now I was watching the new documentary that they've made for this new Blu-ray release, and, and the chief of Clan Wallace, who, who consulted on the film with him, said that he, he sort of spent a lot of time with them and learned to mimic their walk, and he said, he walked like a Scottish man who's coming to kill you, and we all recognised it. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was a great line. So yeah. that's something you recognise as well. Uh, yeah, well, well, Mel has that kind of, you know, he's, he's quite demonic. You know, there's a kind of... Tremendous demonic, but I actually think he's one of the nicest men. I mean, I adore him, and I know he's had a lot of bad press over the years. But I think he's very misunderstood as well, too, because he's very, you know, he's very immediate and in your face. Um, but the irony, too, of course, about him. I mean, I also thought it was weird that actually physically he's more like Rob Roy than right William Wallace, because Rob Roy was a wiry wee guy with rickets and reddish hair, and William Wallace was six foot six. Mel ain't six foot six. <laughs> Liam Neeson, on the other hand, you know, who played Rob Roy. Yeah. So physically, they're actually the wrong way around. And I believe that Mel actually had originally been approached to play um, Rob Roy. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, and had passed on it. Oh. So it, it, was, it was interesting because he, he yeah, he, he's, he has that kind of, and he could deal very well with those who were alcoholically inclined. <laughs> uh, no names, no pack drill, no, but no, he was not. brilliant at dealing with them. He was an absolute master because he had been considerably alcoholically inclined in his day. Yeah. So he knew, he knew about the headbangers, you know. And uh, there was one character who shall be nameless who was particularly headbangerish. And <laughs> Mel apparently dealt with him quite brilliantly. <laughs> Um, you are um, just about you've got a movie coming out uh, in a couple of weeks called Believe in which yeah. you play another Scottish icon yeah. uh, Sir Matt Busby yeah. uh, what was that experience like because it was, it was oh, Matt it was Busby fantastic. way after his uh, Manchester United manager yeah it was, this is a story that was a, it was a story that I, I met Sandy Busby just recently who he said it was partly true but not many many people knew about it in fact it was a bit of a secret in the family that he at one time managed after he retired he managed this little team this little team of boys, uh, and it was, and it, it comes through a long, extraordinary story. But there's a character played by um, Phil Jackson, who is a sort of very close friend of Matt Busby's. This character, uh, and he told this story to actually it was Italians, these two Italian guys, who then told the story to somebody else, and then this script was written called Believe, which is about. It was originally called Theatre of Dreams, but now it's called Believe. Mm. And it was about him really in retirement. He, you know, he, was, very, he was very haunted by the, the, the Munich air disaster, uh, particularly because he felt it was very much his fault, um, partly to do with the fact that the Football League uh, in those days were very anti-Europe, and he was one of the first big pro-European football, who believed in European football and believed that the future of football was connected with European football. So mm. he, had, he made this promise that he would go to Munich and he would get back for the Saturday fixture where Manchester was supposed to be playing some team. And as a result, they tried to take off three times and on the third time they didn't make it. And Sandy told this really tragic story about how Matt was... Uh, he was in, and he was he was all wired up, and Duncan Edwards had not 
died, he was still seriously ill. They didn't think his injuries were as bad as they were, and it turned out it was a lot worse. Mm. So he subsequently died. But Matt asked his wife, he mentioned he went through the, the names of the players and asked her to nod or shake her head when ones, ones of the ones that were lost. And he was quite devastated by this, you know, when she shook her head, he'd mentioned names. And uh, he, he really, at that point, he was on the point of giving up. He said, that's it, I'm not doing it anymore. And he said, and his wife, who was an amazing woman, said, you know, no, you owe it to the memory of these boys to go mm. on. So the, 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 this picks up like 30 years later when he's retired, and he retired from Man U, and he still has, the ghosts of the boys are still there, so they're, they're in the film. They're, they're, their ghosts are still there, it's a bit like Field of Dreams, they're still mm. there, those, those boys. And he meets these kids, and it's about, it's about belief, it's about following your dream, following your dreams and following your bliss. It's a, it's a, I think it's a lovely film, it's a real family film. I, you're playing as well someone that, you know, he was around, I guess, as you were growing up and as he well I remember I used to go and get the Beano on a Thursday at my newsagents in Arbroath Road in Dundee and I always used to get, collect the Beano in the film Fun which were my two comics the Dandy was the Tuesday the Beano in the film Fun was on a Thursday <laughs> and I remember going down to get the Beano and uh, the Evening Tully which was the Dundee Evening Paper had just come in and Stop Press was the plane that didn't take off, you know, the plane that crashed. So I remember then uh, being quite traumatized, but not traumatized, but you know, I mean, quite shaken by it, mm. even as a kid. And I was, what was I, I was, uh, God, I was 11 or 10 at the time, I think it was 11. And I remember it, I remember it vividly, and I remember following the progression, because, you know, in those days it was to do with the papers, you didn't get much in the news in the television, but it was, and the telly had a thing every night about what was going on. Yeah. yeah. And it was the, following the, the de eventual demise of Duncan Edwards, which was because he was this major player at the time, so it it, it was quite potent for me. And you've you've played a lot of bad guys in your time, but you've also played a lot of good guys as well. And one of the uh, the roles that really resonates for me is Twenty Fifth Hour. Mm, um, great you role. have that amazing monologue yeah. at the end of the film, written by David Benahoff, who writes and produces. Uh, uh, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he really interesting, David. It's a fantastic book. And again, great story. Um, we we recorded that speech, and then Spike Lee, who'd never been to Austin, he'd never been to Texas before, he fell in love with Texas, and he also fell in love with the speech, and so it became a much bigger part of the movie than he originally intended. So I had to redo the speech again, that famous that yeah. story when they go over the bridge. But it's a it's a fantastic movie, and he is. Truly, truly great filmmaker. He's mm. probably one of the finest filmmakers I've ever worked with, I think. And was that speech, basically, was that just you in a room? In a, in yeah, a it was me in a room, me in a room with uh, uh, his editor, whose name escapes me now. Mm -hmm. um, we were actually, we did it, in, we did it first of all, and then we did it, I was doing, I think I was doing X-Men. I was in Vancouver doing X-Men. They flew into X-Men, and then I, redo, I redid the whole speech. Amazing. Uh, we've got time for a couple of questions from you guys for uh, Brian now. If you have anything you want to ask him, then put your hands up. And we have Rovi microphones knocking around. And if you're all very, very shy. Don't be shy. Don't Go be shy. On. You, won't, you won't bite, will you? You won't bite. Uh, in that case, we'll, we'll, we'll progress on. Oh, we'll there we are. You see, you suddenly there they all go, go up. There we go. Yeah. Thank you. And suddenly, <laughs> suddenly everyone brings their hands up. We knew it. Uh, one of my favourite films, if that was, I think, was it The Escapist? Oh, yeah. Um, I just wondered what your experiences were 
on that, and obviously the, the director you followed into with Donna the Planet of the Apes as well. Yeah. And was there any sort of consistency to his uh, a, a good A good story there, too. Um, Peter Charnon, who produced Planet of the Apes, uh, rang me about, because I was also one of the producers on The Escapists. And The Escapists was, it's a really interesting movie. Uh, this young man, Rupert Wyatt, who I'd worked with, um, I did a short film, which he won a BAFTA prize for, where everybody had the flu, including the first assistant. No, the first assistants left because somebody had, he had an accident, somebody had an accident. But everybody was sick, and we did this film, and it was an amazing film. It was af set in Afghanistan, but he shot in Hackney, and we shot it just before the... <laughs> you know, as, you, as you would, as you do. And it was just before... It was, it's actually now where the Olympic Village is, but it was before it was. It was kind of a wasteland then. And he did really well with it. And he came to me one day and he said, I want to make a big, bigger version of this. And I, you know, I'm, I, I like being a supporting actor, don't go me along, but occasionally I like to play center forward as well as <laughs> left back, you know. So um, I said, you know, I get asked to, to help a lot of people with their careers and I'm very happy to do that. But occasionally I'd like to do something a bit more interesting, you know. So he said, oh, okay. And then he went away and he came back and he wrote The Escapist. And he wrote it for me. And, and I just, I, I loved the script. I said, now I know that, you know, every, everybody's going to go after the script and ask you to change it. And I don't want you to change a word of it. So I'm going to keep the original script. And you're going to go out there and sell it and do all your notes and do all your coverage that everybody asks you to do. But then we're going to go back. I mean, there was a, to the original script, you know, which is, it was a tactic, you know, and a, and a good, and the best tactic because, you know, I don't believe in committee films, you know, they're boring beyond extreme. You know, I love the, the idea of somebody's vision and it was a brilliant vision. So he did it and it was an incredible film to work on. It was a great cast. Um, you know, just, no, every single member of the cast was a Gemini for some unknown reason, which was <laughs> bizarre. And uh, when, we, when he did the film, uh, there was a morning that as I was wearing my acting hat, my producer hat, where the, the, <laughs> the scene was they dig a tunnel. And I thought, he's given himself an hour to dig a tunnel. I thought it can't be done. And I was just, I thought this was the height of hubris on his part, that he was going to do an hour scene digging a tunnel in an hour. But he did, because he had worked it out so carefully and brilliantly, and the, the sequence is there for the, in the film. And he, we did do it, and we did it in an hour. And when Peter Charman rang me up, and I said, he said, this guy, you know, this Rupert Wyatt, I love this film that you did for him. I said, he's a great director. I said, and I said, and also he's going to save you a lot of money. And I said, because he's very quick, you know. And this is, and it's the interesting thing about young directors, because sometimes the young directors are, are ambitious, but they forget about the pounds, shillings, and pence. They forget about the kind of, the kind of housekeeping of a film. But, uh, you know, he so desperately wanted to make the film that he, he understood totally about the housekeeping, totally about how what to spend and not what to spend. It's like doing, it's like doing poor theatre. It's like doing lunchtime theatre, that you get a director who really knows, understands what he's got to work, or, or she understands, or a, you know, a female as well. So it was a tremendous experience. And as a result of that, he got the job, Planet of the Apes, and then he had to deal with the heavy dudes you know, coming <laughs> in and giving him note after note after note after note. But he, he kept his head and survived it, but it was tough. Uh, we got time for one last question. This gentleman over here. Have you got the microphone? 
I was just wanting to know, how did Michael Mann come to pick you to be the original Hannibal Lecter or Manhunter? There was a lot of people up for that role, uh, including John Lithgow, um, uh, Brian Dennehy, and um, I was doing a play on, called Rat in the Skull, which was a play about Northern Ireland. I was, in, I was playing at the Public Theatre in New York. We'd done it in London, it had been a big success, and we moved there. And um, this wonderful, very eccentric woman called Bonnie Timmerman came to see it. And the next thing I knew, I, I was invited to go along and audition for it. And this guy that I was working with, an actor called Phil Jackson, Philip, I said, would you come and read the scene with me? Because I don't, I don't want to read it with some kind of faceless secretary who can barely get two words out. So he said, yeah, sure, I'll come. Uh, in fact, I still own for that after all these years. And uh, so I, uh, I came, and Bonnie Timmerman was very funny, and she said, uh, would you mind if I didn't see you? I said, I beg your pardon? I said, she said, I, I don't want to see you. I, I said, but I'm doing an audition on tape. What do you mean? She said, I, can you, I, I don't want to see, you see, when I, when I, where I was in the theater, I was listening to you, I was, I, I couldn't see you for the first 20 minutes of where I was sitting, <laughs> but I could hear your voice. And it was your voice that really got me. And I, I and it was the voice that I'm, and so I said, I said okay. So I turned my back to her and turned my back to the camera and played the whole thing with my back so that all you saw was the, my ear and eventually at, at one point I did turn around which is ironically how I start off the scene you know unlike Tony Hopkins who's standing right in the middle of the set so very visually you, you didn't see me because all you heard was my voice um, it was a, as a result of that that she and she was my champion so she actually got me the job and, and it was great. It was one of those amazing experiences. But the film, it was interesting because the film was produced by Dina De Laurentiis. And he owned all the, he did subsequently all those films. But he never liked Manhunter. Not because he didn't like the film, because it represented the time when he went bust. He became bankrupt. <laughs> he made a film called, uh, this is a film set in Chinatown with Mickey Rourke. And he filmed down in Wilmington. Year of, the uh, what was the film? Year of the Dragon. Year of the Dragon, yeah. yeah. yeah that's right, because that's right, we were, you know, it's called Red Dragon, and the, the Year of the Dragon, he said, well, I can't call it Red Dragon because I've just made the Year <laughs> of the Dragon, so they changed it to Manhunter. And um, so we made the film, and the film lay in escrow for a long time. We opened it in, in L.A., and it had tremendous notices, some of the best notices I've, I've ever been associated with. But then we didn't have the screens. We couldn't put it out there because... Donatus didn't have the money. He was broke. And the film was in escrow because it was part of uh, a legal thing. So it, it floundered, you know, it did well, it floundered. And, and then Jeremy Thomas, uh, like four years later, yeah, sort of three years later, rediscovered the film and put it out in England and then subsequently in, in Europe. And then it became a big success. And then they did the famous Silence of the Lambs, which I wasn't in, <laughs> and, um, and there are reasons for that, which is too long to go on. But the interesting thing is that they then decided NBC to buy Red Dragon or Manhunter, and it was the highest-rated TV film of all times because they put it out after, and it's something like I don't know, it's something like thirty million saw it in one night. So it was quite, it's quite a fascinating story about the whole story of Red Dragon. I mean, it's a kind of 
uh, you know, it's almost encyclopedic in its story. It is amazing. Uh, Brian, we're going to let you go, but uh, I just want to ask one very last, very, very quick thing. Last time I saw you was at the Empire, the Jemison Empire Awards back in March. That's right. When for the first time ever, you and the other Brian Cox I know. met. I know. What was that experience like? Well, <laughs> what was it like? It was bizarre because, it, you know, I, I, I am a professor, believe it or not. Uh, I have several doctorates, though I don't go around saying I'm Professor Brian Cox. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, as you know, you, you, for some unknown reason, you, want, you, you made him give an award, which was for something which I thought was highly <laughs> I inappropriate. I thought, like, why are they asking this guy to give yeah. the award? So they called for Professor Brian Cox to come to the stage to present the award. So I got up. My son was there, and he said, I dare you. I said, I'm going to do it. He said, I dare I said, no, I'm going to do it. So I got up. So we both, the Brian Coxes, came on the stage of the sun. And it was all done in good humor. You know, it's tiresome, but there you go. I mean, it's, it, you learn a lot of lessons about what's in a name, you know, a lot more than you think. <laughs> On that note, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Professor Brian Cox, everybody. Hey. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. At the end, uh, Brian Cox said to me, you instigated that meeting, uh, which, is, which is kind of true. In slightly accusatory terms. Yeah, I know, because I was interviewing the other Brian Cox. and oh, No, I was interviewing Brian Cox, that Brian Cox, and the other one was hovering just out of shot waiting for his turn. And I suddenly realized, holy shit, this is history. So uh, it's actually on the internet. I think you can go and see it on the Empire's YouTube page, uh, that moment when history uh, was made. And Time Cop lied to us, because they actually shook hands and the world didn't implode, which is, which is great. Yeah, Braveheart is out now on Blu-ray, DVD, and it's available uh, digitally as well absolute legend and uh, yes as we pointed out earlier on we've had Cox Wood and Johnson on the podcast as well if only we'd had Alan coming okay now it's time to finish off with your questions uh, for us think of this as a live reddit AMA but one where we actually can tell what's going on I don't understand those things at all so let's get your hands in the air if you have any questions at all for us there's a gentleman right at the very very back by the pillar first question no pressure Seeing as we are in Scotland, I'm just going to ask you all, what is your favourite Scottish set film? Favourite Scottish film? Local hero. Local ha! hero. Go in there. Damn it! Yes! Gregory's Girl. Second. Ray, there we go. <laughs> I can't look beyond Trainspotting, really. I think that, that film's amazing. And Shallow Grave, you mean, you know, which I think is a Scottish film, even though Danny Boyle is not Scottish himself. Um, I think that film, those two films are a fantastic double bill for me. I saw, I remember seeing Shadow Grave when it came out in the cameo. It's a disloyal thing to say when I'm in the film house, isn't it? Um, and I, does anyone know where the f- opening shot of that film was set? Is that in Edinburgh or Glasgow when they're driving? Edinburgh. Is it Edinburgh? Because I think I lived on one of those roads as well. So I have a special um, place in my heart for Shadow Obvi- Grave. Obviously. <laughs> obviously you can see me. Um, I, lo- I lived on a road featured in Ronin. It's the Paris set film, yeah. Just thought I'd share that. Where? Why not? Where? In Paris. Oh, okay. Um, that's going nowhere. No, I'm just saying, <laughs> Sean Bean threw up on my street. I mean, that's a big deal. If Sean Bean threw no, up on the no. street in a film, that's oh, something that's you want to remember. Sean Bean's thrown up in everyone's street at some point. <laughs> I, I used to live in a road where Simon Pegg was recently shooting Absolutely Anything, which is the movie where he, he's teaming up with the Monty Python man, uh, Terry Jones. And I've tried to explain this film before, but essentially it's a little bit like Bruce Almighty, except with Simon Pegg, uh, and there's a talking dog played by Robin Williams. Anyway, I was walking to my local budgeons and there was, there was a series of men wearing balaclavas in the back of a pickup truck pretending to shoot at me. And I just thought, this, this trip is going horribly wrong. Yeah, so that's my tidbit. For movies that have appeared on my road, 
Amazing. Sorry, uh, which wasn't which wasn't the question. I think uh, no. I think you asked something else. My um, my favourite Scottish film. I've yeah. already alluded to it, but my question to you guys is: Who wants to live forever? Oh, what a film! <laughs> it, it it takes a really special film to cast Sir Sean Connery as. Um, I think he's meant to be an Egyptian. He's actually not even meant to be Spanish. He's meant to be an Egyptian originally. That's correct. Yes. He spent a lot of time in Japan, obviously, to get his sword. Yes. And then became a Spanish nobleman. That's correct. <laughs> While casting a Frenchman as a Highlander. Oh, oh no. It's magic. Madness. I've never had a film shoot in my uh, street before, ever. I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> Hollywood, just, if you're listening. I just, I just feel quite left out. However, I was on the set of X-Men Days of Future Past, <laughs> uh, which was quite good. Sorry, sorry, we trampled all of your questions, but uh, anyone else? Yes, you, sir, and we'll uh, not answer your question as well. This is the guy that said he brought some love for us. Oh. Did you? Went um, back. Yeah, I'll pass it on at the end. Um, <laughs> is it uh, a caramel log? There's no caramel log, I'm afraid. Okay. Um, I'm not Scottish, as you can hear, I'm afraid. So, no caramel logs. But, no judgment here. Um, <laughs> so, with, with like all this talk about like uh, Ryan Johnson and um, uh, jo- Colin Trevorrow, Josh Trank, all that kind of thing, would you not rather they, like realistically, they were working on their own original projects? Uh, instead of kind of being swallowed up in it. Because if you think about the films that are actually the most interesting this year, like from what you guys have got most excited about mm. on the podcast, stuff like Calvary, Grand Budapest Hotel, 12 Years a Slave, that kind of thing. It, not that any of them are going to make 12 Years a Slave, but I mean, <laughs> would you not prefer them to be working on their own projects and just get someone a bit more homogenous to be making? There is, now, I, now I want to see Wes Anderson's Star Wars. <laughs> that would be amazing. That would be astonishing. I just really want someone to... To use your word homogenous to just knock episode eight in the park. Right. I'd love to see Wes Anderson a long time ago in a perfectly symmetrical galaxy far, far away. That would be awesome. Yeah, yes, I'll, I'll, good idea. I kind of agree with you and kind of don't. I agree with you in the sense that whatever it was that, uh, that Ryan Johnson was talking about, which probably isn't Star Wars, is probably fascinating on the basis of his films to date. Um, so I do want him to make that. I think, though, uh, and, and I also think that, you know, the, the length of time these films take to make, you're talking uh, two and a half years director of director time, uh, at least, generally speaking, um, that's a lot of time to be out of the indie game. That said... You do one of these and it can set you up for the next 10 years. You do one of these and you can get your $10 million project greenlit mm. for the next, you know, however many of them you can make. And you probably get a built-in audience that hopefully follows you to those films and means that they will be profitable. Um, so I think there's, a, there's an element of what Guillermo del Toro has always done, which is, you know, one for them, one for me. I think there's an element of if you do Hellboy, then you get the green light for Pan's Labyrinth. And if that is the case, then, then they're doing the right thing. Yeah, I, I think I've said this before in the podcast as well, though. These guys grew up loving Star Wars and Jurassic Park and Ryan Johnson's a Star Wars nut and Colin Trevorrow you know, grew up loving Jurassic Park as well. So uh, I think they're really, really nice fits for it. Um, and I think these guys, I've said this before in the podcast, bring a really nice indie sensibility as well as a commercial sensibility as well. So I don't think for them they'll see that necessarily they're slumming it no it's not your words but you know but you know, I think these are movies that are going to be close to their heart and I don't think you find a filmmaker around who'll turn down Star Wars to be honest Wes Anderson well, apart from Wes Anderson <laughs> apart from Wes Anderson we'll never know we'll, we'll never yeah. know who, who was it who turned down was it David Lynch who turned down Star Wars is that right 
did he turn it down? Did he, he ever get offered the gig officially? Cronenberg turned down Beverly Hills Cop and Flashdance. That's one of my favorite <laughs> favorite stories about David Cronenberg. I'd love to see David Cronenberg's Beverly Hills Cop. Can you imagine he's insert the banana at the tailpipe and it just starts fusing, turns into a giant penis? That would be <laughs> that'd be really I'm weird. I'm actually stuck on David Cronenberg's Flashdance. <laughs> yeah, what would pour down when she pulls on the lever? <laughs> I, w- I would like to say, like I know I know the point you're making, and I do understand your point you're making, but. If somebody homogenous did Star Wars, that would just break my heart. Like, I know, I know what you're saying. No. Hey, hey, hey. Get out. Hey. First of all, you're English, and we hate that. <laughs> um, no, I, I, it's difficult to argue with what you've just said. Uh, no, I, 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 I feel like it's exciting. And to be honest, I thrive on the excitement more than the actual films. I can't remember the last time I actually watched a film. But I do like getting excited about them. So just give me that, okay? You watched watched that, they, you, the, the one about the National, you remember? You were there? Oh, yeah. yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. That was good fun. That was good fun. I you did. Should, you should review it in the podcast one of these days. I should, yeah. Um, before oh, we, sorry, Phil. I was going to say, not every... Not every one of those sorts of directors that you mentioned wants to necessarily do those big films, I think. Um, Shane Carruth, who did Upstream Colour, which was mind-bending, and Primer, which was a little bit Ryan Johnson-y in its kind of time travel, but Lupri. He, we asked him on the podcast if he had any interest in, in doing those sorts of Hollywood things, and he was just flat out, no. I think there's a lot of filmmakers that are happy doing what they do. But yeah, I think that's, that's a good point that Chris makes, that there was a generation of filmmakers that grew up with the movie brats, Films, the Scorsese's and um, Freakins, etc., Bogdanovich's, and now you're into the next, perhaps the next generation, young filmmakers who grew up with the blockbusters that kind of we grew up with. But I also I think, think it, we, I'm kind of old. But I think they grew up with the Bogdanovich's as well. I think mm. you know, David Lowry, for example, who did End of Body Saints, is a huge Star Wars fan. But he also could mm. probably tell you chapter and first by Peter Bogdanovich as or, well. Or so that's Ma- why Malik. that's why I think it's really interesting that we have this new wave of filmmaker now who can mesh those sensibilities. Yeah, exactly. I think also, we're going to make some great films. I would point out that Ryan Johnson actually consulted, didn't he, with Shane Carruth mm. on Looper? Exactly. Yeah. Now, I, I want you to imagine for a moment that he does the same with Star Wars. <laughs> there, we've got something that's definitely not homogenous. I think Shane Carruth could explain midichlorians. Yes, this would be from pigs. It's orchids which transplant their blueness yeah. into a pig, yeah. which is then siphoned into a human. Yeah. And that's why I can think it's things the pig upwards. Blood. The pig blood, which explains the Gamorrean guards, and then, exactly. oh my God, everything's beginning to make sense. This is huge, guys, huge. Um, by the way, Nick Desemlian has been sending me texts for the last five minutes uh, saying, uh, first of all, how's the podcast going? I said it was okay. Uh, are you on stage now? Are you reading out my texts? I will, I said. Send something. So Nick Desemlian texted me, big penis. <laughs> was that his oh, question? That's it. Yeah, no, it was the actual text. It wasn't a picture of a big penis. <laughs> was, it, was it big penis question mark? Big, no, exclamation mark. Big penis! So maybe he's been startled by a big penis back in the office. Maybe he's on Tinder <laughs> and, and hit the wrong button. Has it? <laughs> There's a button for big penis? <laughs> uh, any other questions for us? <laughs> yes, please, sir. Wait for the microphone, please, if you can. If this, coming, if it's this, racing around. If this doesn't involve penises, it's not going not gonna to fly. We've, we've gone way off the... Hopefully it doesn't involve <laughs> penises. Hello, Pod. Hello. Um, Hello. This is sort of my suggestion as a missed lunch, but on the, uh, on the subject of chef and food porn, uh, what do you think are some of the best like, foodie, like, culinary scenes in cinema? All of Big Night. Yeah, all of Big Night, yeah. All of Big Night, that's true. I would actually also um, mention Waitress. I don't know if anyone here has seen it. It's kind of a little tiny film. Uh, Kerry Russell stars as a waitress. 
Kerry Russell, yes, mm-hmm. um, stars as a waitress who bakes pies. And she bakes different pies according to her mood, and they all, they're all actually really plot-sensitive pies, but they also look <laughs> amazing. Plot-sensitive yeah, pie. Um, <laughs> but they also look amazing. And again, I went into a screening on an empty stomach and sat there regressing it for two hours or 90 minutes or whatever it is. It's, the pies look exceptionally good. And I'm usually a cake person. I'm not like Dean Winchester. Um, uh, and yet, and they looked incredible. I don't See, think there were a... like three supernatural fans in the audience who yeah, thought no, it was I, really I, funny. I got that, I got that. There's not a single person here, I don't think, who's seen Goodfellas and hasn't seen the scene where they, they cook the, uh, the amazing pasta dish in, in prison and, and not wanted to go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> Ideally with some mafiosos, because that, that, that would be amazing. That film just makes me hungry. Every time I watch it, it's great. Labor Day. Have you seen Labor Day? It comes up every week. My brother's obsessed with how wrong the scene is. And so am I, because it's just awful. It's just, it's kind of, they're making a peach, what is it, a peach cobbler? I think they were oh, making cobbler. a plot-sensitive pie. Plot-sensitive pie, <laughs> that's right. They'd run out it's of plot. It's a thing. Yeah, and it's uh, Josh Brolin, Kate Winslet together, doing this sort of erotic kind of massaging of the peaches. And a small <laughs> child, also in the scene. And he Who goes in go, the pie. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, they massage... No. no, Titus Andronicus, no. no. I would also mention Butterbeer, which I was lucky enough to recently try, oh, yeah. which is like the best hangover cure ever. It's just like, if you actually try it, if you go to the um, resorts that have it, almost solid ice-ish, caramelly, coffee gulp up to about here, and then it's just a chunk, maybe a solid disc of cream. Ah, mm. oh, I, challenge, <laughs> I challenge anyone to finish it. It's one of those drinks that pushes you so far back into sober that you need to be drunk first to have it. Because <laughs> it is such a fierce drink, and yeah. it costs $8. Where was but, this? Yeah. Where did you go? I got to last week, but I got to see the new Diagonale over in Universal Studios, Florida, in Orlando, and it is the most amazing place. It's four streets. You know how people joke that Harry Potter, oh, it's just like England. I was just like walking around Borough Market. Oh, that building looks old. There were buildings that are old, <laughs> and they all look like this. Not to ruin it too much, but you can actually buy wands, and then there are signs on the floor, and you do this incantation, like a Wii, like a Wii remote, and you can do like, up, you know, obviously you know what this means, great radio. Uh, <laughs> and it will make an umbrella above you, which you didn't realise was above you, rain on top of you, over you. And then this, you know, it's just incredible. It's just an incredible experience. I really do recommend it. But my God, the butterbeer is off the chain. (laughs) I I had some slightly closer to home. I had some in Watford um, at the (laughs) studio tour. Um, And yeah, I don't know why they serve it in tankards because you can drink that much. That's how much you can drink. A shot. Yeah, they they should genuinely put it in shot glasses. It could Mm. be like teetotaler shots. I remember when I was on set of X-Men Days of Future Past. I think it's probably time to take a next question. Oh, yeah, sorry. I just drifted off there in a reverie. What's happening? I think we have been given the bat signal. We have been given the bat signal. We've got time for a couple more questions, just a couple more. There's a hand up right at the back. You can see the hand, sir. Yeah, in fact, there's two people. And we'll go to you for the last question then. Great. Hi there. I heard a rumour that you were once on the set of X-Men Days of Future Past. (laughs) (laughs) I can't confirm or deny that at this particular time, but yes, I was. It was awesome. I was wondering, what's the most boring set visit you've ever done? Oh, my God. I was on set of a film called The Best Man that never got released in cinemas. Um, and we just sat around in trailers all day in London, in, in near West Ham Stadium. 
I, I've been on some extraordinarily boring sets. I'm not going to name the film in question because I haven't written it yet. But the worst thing that, that can possibly happen is when you go on a big action movie and you end up watching someone open the door for like 12 hours, which, which has happened. Or you're stuck in a room with other journalists who are the worst for ages. My, one of my very first set visits, my, I think my first abroad was on Hearts War. Uh, and they, they didn't, I didn't see any filming. I flew to Prague and I didn't see a single bit of filming. Not one. Um, and we were stuck in a tent for like 10 hours. And Bruce Willis wouldn't come and talk to us because he's Bruce Willis. He doesn't do that type of thing. And luckily Colin Farrell turned up and he was great. But I've had experiences like that. You go to God's, I went to Godsend, which is a dreadful horror film in Toronto. And that was, again, just stuck in a room. And you know that Robert De Niro is outside doing really Robert De Niro-y things. He's probably becoming a vending machine or, or whatever it is that he does. You know, he uses his powers of method to become things. I, I read in a book. Uh, and on that bombshell, uh, that is it for our second experiment in grueling terror. Uh, a second live podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, the regular podcast, pre-recorded podcast, will return next week. This one's going to go up on Friday, so you can listen to this and edit it actually making sense once it goes up on Friday-ish. Hopefully we're going to do more of these down the line. Who knows where we'll turn up? Who knows? Maybe in, in a street being sick with Sean Bean. Who knows? But um, uh, Join us next week for more from Limited Fun. We'll be joined by Kieran Knightley, who's going to be talking about Begin Again, mm-hmm. and uh, Richard Linklater, the brilliant Richard Linklater talking about his new film, Boyhood, which I haven't seen, but I hear is brilliant. Is it brilliant, yes. guys? Brilliant. Fantastic. Until then, it is goodbye from Ali. Bye. It is goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Helen. Farewell. And it's goodbye from me. And uh, thank you so much for coming, guys. We literally could not do this without you. Uh, we'll see you next time. And it is, as I believe they say up here in Scotland, I checked this on Duolingo. Goodbye from me. See you next time. <laughs> Bye-bye.